morning and a welcome to Alger Assembly of God. We welcome you to December. As we near an inch closer and closer and closer to Christmas, we do welcome you to a brand new series entitled Promise. How, how many of you love promises? You love promises being made to you, right? How many of you love making promises? Sometimes we enjoy making promises. Sometimes we don't always follow through on our promise. You know, when the girls were little, sometimes promises would include things like ice cream, something simple as ice cream, right? We're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and then ice cream. And, you know, sometimes mom and dad, you know, we can get busy doing the this and the this and the this and the this, but guess who never forgot about the promise of ice cream? Uh, the girls, right? Some of you are saying, yes, if, that, if it involves ice cream, I'm there. Well, whatever that, yeah, I got an amen on that. Thank you. All throughout our lives, we've heard promises. We've been, uh, promises have been made to us. You and I have made promises to others. We're going to be looking throughout the month of December at promises, more specifically, prophecies. Prophecies are promises given in advance in the Old Testament for telling and foreshadowing the life of Jesus Christ. And so each week we're going to be looking at some of the different promises from the Old Testament and taking a look at their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. No prophecies foretell details about the birth of any other religious leader. Go check it out. Look at the leader of any other world religion. And yet through the Old Testament, it has pinpointed numerous details about Jesus Christ, the Savior of the universe. Now, I, I want to challenge you today to believe God's promises. That's the, the main point, the main thought we're going to get to. Believe God's promises. But before we get there, I want to invite you to use your imagination a little bit. How many of you still have a pretty good active imagination? So if you need to close your eyes, feel free to do that. If you can focus by keeping your eyes open, do that. But I want you to use your imagination with me. And I want you to imagine that, let's say, in Waco, Texas, ancient scrolls were uncovered found to have been written 600 to 1,000 years ago. Some of them were written before the discovery of America by Columbus. All of them were written before the American Revolution. These scrolls predict that someone in our generation's lifetime would be born who is of the direct line and lineage of George Washington. This person would be descended from a long line of important founders of America, all of whom would be known to have been from Virginia. Now, the scrolls further reveal that this one person would be born in Hardin County, Ohio, in the village of Alger. Miraculously, his mother would be a virgin, and at the time of his birth, dignitaries from other countries would mysteriously know about him and come to worship him and present him with precious gifts, believing he was a special messenger from God. In addition, our imagination and our imaginary prophecies would also reveal that as a result of this special child being born, local ruling tyrants would make an attempt to murder him. 
This would result in the death of many other innocent children whose mothers would weep over their loss. And to protect this special child from the tyrants, his father would take him to another country and then later bring him back. The future child would then grow up to lead a mighty, powerful, religious revolution. How's your imagination going so far? Imagine all of that came true during our lifetime, fulfilling the predictions of these centuries-old scrolls. Now, we've used our imagination for this taking place in the United States as astronomically unlikely as our imaginary scenario. This is somewhat of a parallel to what we see about biblical prophecies taking place in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, in his book, Science Speaks, author Peter Stoner applies the modern science of probability to just eight prophecies regarding Christ. We're going to get a little bit mathematical. How, how many of you loved math in, in school? Bunch of heads shaking no and some hands going up, okay? So he applies the science of probability to one person fulfilling only eight prophecies. Eight prophecies. He says the chance of any one man to fulfill all eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th. That's one in 100 quadrillion. Or if we put it on the screen, one in one followed by 17 zeros. How many of us have heard of a quadrillion before today? One in 100 quadrillion. So some of you, you're looking at that number, you're seeing a whole bunch of zeros, and how many of you just say, that just went whew, way over my head? Can you break it down a little bit more? How many of you are more visual learners? Visual learners, okay? So I want you to imagine with me, he says, if you were to take silver dollars, so this is an American silver dollar, and if you were to take 100 quadrillion of them, what would it do? What would it fill? He says it would fill the state of Texas two feet deep. Now, how many of you have been to Texas or driven through Texas? That's a little ways from here. It's a large state. But if you're not really sure how large it is, I looked it up. It's about six times the size of Ohio. Ohio's a pretty decent-sized state. So fill six states of Ohio two feet deep with silver dollars. It would take 100 quadrillion of them to do that. But he says, go a little further. He says, I want you to mark one X. Take one of these silver dollars and mark an X on the back. And now toss it into the mix of six states of Ohio filled two feet deep. Now, we're going to let you roam. We're going to let you go. You can walk anywhere, drive anywhere in six states of Ohio two feet deep. And I'm going to give you one chance, blindfolded, to find the one silver dollar marked with an X. You would say that's impossible. You want to know the probability of that? 
One in 10 to the 17th. One in a hundred quadrillion. That is the mathematical probability of one person fulfilling eight prophecies. In Scripture, what we see is that there are over 300 prophecies fulfilled in the life and birth and death of Jesus Christ. Imagine what those odds would be. Imagine how much you would have to fill up the globe to do that. He says the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing those eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man is the same chance of finding that one silver dollar. Astronomical. So I want to invite you to Matthew Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 2, as we take a look at a part of the Christmas story, a part of the, uh, the references to Jesus Christ and his birth, and then we'll jump back into the Old Testament and the prophecy that promised it. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we've read this, Matthew chapter 2. We, we remember reading about the wise men, and, and they come to Herod, and they're saying, hey, you know, where's, where's this one? And as they look at the scriptures, they say, well, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Nobody's doubting the scripture. Nobody's doubting the prophecy. Nobody's doubting the promise from the Old Testament about the birthplace of the king. They're all saying, hey, it's got to be in Bethlehem. See, they, they knew it up here. They knew it in their heads, but they didn't know it or understand it or live it out in their hearts. And a quick reminder is that sometimes we can be so close to the truth and yet still so far away from its impact. We can know a whole bunch of stuff about the Christmas story and about Jesus without really understanding or learning or living or applying it. See, the, the chief priests and teachers here are quoting the scriptures somewhat loosely. In fact, they're taking several verses and kind of smashing it together here. It's the Old Testament prophecy about Jesus Christ, the Savior, written about 700 years before it took place. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me back to Micah. Micah is in the Old Testament. So if you're in Matthew, flip a few pages back. It's one of the minor prophets. If you're in your electronic text using uh, uh, the, the Bible app or version, simply tap on Micah. But we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 5. And again, the challenge this morning is I encourage you to believe God's promises. Believe God's promises 
First of all, believe God's promises even if you feel insignificant. Check it out. Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, we read this. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Stop right there. That's a mouthful. How many of you are glad you're not saying that or pronouncing that? We get some amens. Any, any place to throw some amens, we'll take that. Bethlehem Ephrathah. It's about five or six miles outside of Jerusalem. And that Ephrathah is the name of the district in Jerusalem, uh, in Judah rather, where Bethlehem was located. Joshua chapter 19 shows there was another Bethlehem located in Zebulon. So it's, it's a way of indicating and specifying which Bethlehem. It reminds me of the town or city Springfield. Now, my, uh, my parents were born in Brooklyn and Bronx and, and uh, were on the East Coast for many years. My brothers and sisters uh, were born on Long Island. That's where my dad pastored for many years. And then they went to Illinois. I was born in Joliet, a suburb of Chicago, lived in Quincy for a, a few years. But if you were to ask me where I grew up, I would tell you Springfield, Illinois. We were there for about 10 years. So from the ages of 4 to 14, I went through kindergarten all the way into uh, half of my freshman year before we left. So 10-plus years of my life were in Springfield, Illinois. Springfield, Illinois, at that time, not sure where it is now, but it was right around 100,000 in population. How many of you know there's just a handful or a number of Springfields around? In fact, I went to Bible college in a Springfield, Springfield, Missouri. If you were to look it up, which I did, uh, there are, how many is it, 34 Springfields in the United States. Between towns, villages, cities, townships. I mean, a whole bunch of states have Springfields. So if you were to ask me where did I grow up, and I said Springfield, you might have a whole bunch of uh, thoughts come to mind based on where you live. Was I talking about something here in Ohio, Illinois, Missouri? So when the author, when Matthew is uh, in writing, and when Micah as the prophet is saying, Bethlehem Ephrathah, they need to specify which Bethlehem it is. He says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, speaking about this specific town outside of Jerusalem, though you are small among the towns or the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. I'm sure it was boggling the minds. How can the origins be from of old and from ancient times and yet be born? Well, it's going to be in Jesus Christ. It's fulfilled. He says, but you, though you are small. That word that's used, it literally means though you are lowly, though you are the least, though you are weak, though you are despised. How many of you say, wow, that's really, really encouraging for that Bethlehem? I mean, Bethlehem's having a little bit of a, you know, anxiety attack at being least and, and weak or despised. He's saying, hey, that's what you are, Bethlehem. Though you are small, though you're referred to as rather weak or despised, out of you is going to come one who's going to be a ruler. 
And the origins are from of old. Now, in the Old Testament here, each of these 12 tribes, such as the tribe of Judah, was divided into clans, oftentimes into groups of thousands. And if a community was too small for a thousand, they were enfolded or kind of grouped together into some other tribes. Anybody know any communities around here that are not quite a thousand or more? There's a bunch of them in this area, right? We're having church in one. You might live in one. So there's a whole bunch of communities that would not qualify. They'd be, have to kind of folded together or grouped together to be considered as a clan. So many would say the population of Bethlehem at this time might be just in the several hundreds. Some would say 150, some would say 300 to 500, but it was pretty small. Uh, what was the uh, Christmas carol we sang this morning? Oh, gigantic town of Bethlehem? I don't think that was the Christmas carol. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. It was a little town. So you say, well, where are you from? Well, Bethlehem. Oh, where's that? Well, you know, we're near Jerusalem. How many of you, uh, with your hometown, or uh, certainly I've experienced that when you're talking about Alger? I mean, even literally going to Lima. Different times, I remember one specifically, getting my hair cut in Lima. And, you know, you're a captive audience, and uh, the the person cutting your hair, just making conversation, right? It's typically, oh, what are you doing? What are you out doing today? Oh, doing some errands. Oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, where do you pastor? In Alger, Alger Assembly of God. Where's that? I was on the east side of Lima, great clips outside of Walmart. Where's that? Oh, about 15 minutes east of here. I meet people all around the state, other pastors and ministry leaders and talking about serving in ministry and and presbyter here of our West Central area, and I pastor Alger Assembly of God. Follow-up question, where's that? About 15 miles east of Lima, about 15 miles east of I-75, in between Lima and Kenton. However you want to announce it, you've got to say what you are near to describe Alger. It's a little bit like Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrathah, small town, small village, and Micah's prophesying and saying, hey, but you, Bethlehem, though you're small, though you might be considered lowly or weak or despised by maybe some of the other people in some of these other larger areas, out of you is going to come a ruler. See, the focus is not just on Bethlehem being a small town or a small village geographically or maybe not having so many people, but it's, it's also the fact that it's politically rather insignificant. It, it was not really mentioned. It, it was so small. If you take a look in Joshua chapter 15... When they were talking about all of the towns of Judah, this was some of the census and and listing all the different towns and and kind of giving, plotting out the land, the allotment of the land as they went into the promised land. You will not find Bethlehem mentioned. Go go ahead and count up every single town mentioned for Judah. I think there's over 100 just in one of the tribes. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Bethlehem is not mentioned. I mean, 
Surely if God was going to bring his son to the earth, wouldn't he have picked a prominent, significant, powerful place? I mean, maybe he could choose Jerusalem, Athens, Caesarea, Philippi, Cairo, or Babylon. I mean, some big, monumental, influential cities, and yet the prophecy is Bethlehem. Uh, Which one? Well, you know, the little one. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you know, over by Jerusalem. Where? Oh, in Judah. Yeah, okay, I got you. One theologian, Calvin Miller, called Bethlehem a one-camel town. One-camel town. In other words, not much there. If an individual or if a worldwide company was preparing for a worldwide launch of their item, whatever it is, do you think that they would prefer the launch to be in a place like New York, Los Angeles, London, or a place like Alger McGuffey Herod? From the worldwide standpoint, New York City, Los Angeles, London are the significant cities, true? And yet here we see Bethlehem Ephrathah. Out of you is going to come the ruler. God often chooses the insignificant, the lowly, the regular, the common to be used in mighty ways for his purposes. I mean, think about other parts of the Christmas story. We're talking about Bethlehem and this town prophesied to be where he would be born, a rather insignificant and small town. The stable and the manger weren't the most awe-inspiring objects. Mary and Joseph, they were average and ordinary teenagers. Shepherds heard about this. They were average, ordinary individuals working outdoors. Believe the promises of God, even though at times you might feel insignificant. The problem with many of us, and author Vance Havner observed it, is this. Many of us are not big enough to become little enough to be used by God. Let me say that again. That was good. He wrote this. Many of us are not big enough to become little enough to be used by God. Bethlehem, tiny town used by God. Joseph and Mary, not overly significant in the eyes of the world, used by God. Shepherds, Used by God. The stable and the manger, used by God. You might look at other individuals and think, how or why would God choose to use me? Believe his promises. God's got some great things in store for you to do in you and to do through you. It's not just about using the mighty or the known or the magnificent. Believe God's promises, even at times if you feel insignificant. 
but believe God's promises as well, even when nothing is happening. Even when nothing seems to be happening. Continue here. Micah chapter 5, verse 3, he writes, Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Hmm. We just read about a pretty powerful promise. Bethlehem's small, tiny, rather despised, insignificant, but a ruler is going to come out of Bethlehem. That's a pretty powerful promise. But before they can enjoy the promise, verse 3 says, they're going to experience abandonment and not a whole lot's going to be happening for a while. How many of you are a little bit impatient? Some of you, you, you couldn't get that hand up fast enough. You were so impatient, you had to get it up there, right? That describes us many of, many of the times. We are impatient. We want something and we want it now. We want it. And sometimes the challenge is to trust God, believe God, even when nothing seems to be happening. Because we look around and we say, well, God... Something's happening for this person over here. Something's happening for this person over there. This family, that family, this individual. God, why is nothing happening for me? That's human nature at times. Someone else gets healed. Why are they getting healed? Or why is nothing happening for me? Someone else gets blessed. Well, why is not, why am not I being blessed? Believe God's promises even when nothing seems to be happening in your life. See, it was crucial for the believers here in Judah, as Micah is prophesying, to realize they're going to go through a lot of nothing for a while, but don't lose heart. A ruler's going to come, is going to be born in Bethlehem, but you're going to go through a whole lot of nothing until you get there. Even, even the faithful will experience being given up or being abandoned for a time. But we don't like that. We want stuff to happen, happen now. Sometimes we feel that way. We feel like nothing's happening in our life. Nothing's happening in our walk with God. Nothing's happening in what we want to have happen at school, at work, at whatever. Why is it not coming together the way I want it? Here, Israel was without a Davidic king from the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. all the way until Christ. Hundreds of years of nothing. We're in Micah, one of the minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. And if you were to take that physical page and flip it over, you would flip one page and you would get to the Gospel of Matthew. And we say, wow, look how awesome. Matthew chapter 1, we're looking at the genealogy of Jesus and into the story of Jesus Christ. It's one page. There's about 400 years of silence in between the prophecies of the Old Testament and the occurrences in the New Testament. 400 years of silence. Some of you and I, oh, we get a little antsy, a little bit uh, impatient if, if something doesn't happen in just, you know, four minutes. 
nevertheless, four centuries, right? 400 years of nothingness is happening in addition to everything else that Israel had gone through. Again, Micah's prophecy is about 700 years before Jesus. So there's 300 years of challenge and nothingness followed by 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament and Jesus. We've got to believe God's promises even when nothing seems to be happening. Imagine going generation after generation after generation, and you've heard the prophecy, you've heard the promise, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, yeah, I know, that lowly little place, out of it's going to come a ruler. When? I don't know. Generation after generation after generation... Do you realize how many generations it would have taken over the course of 700 years? We're not talking waiting a few days or waiting a few weeks, waiting a few months. We're talking hundreds of years. Imagine waiting. Hundreds of prophecies about a deliverer, about a Messiah, about a Savior, and yet Nothing. Generation after generation and nothing. Longing for something great to come from something little and nothing. God keeps his promises. Believe them. You and I, the, the tendency is to jump in and try to help God out. You ever, you ever done that? I have as well. Say, but God, you said in your word, or but God, I believe you are nudging and guiding me towards this, and it hasn't happened yet, so let me just jump in and help you out. If you're like me, when you jump in and try to help God out, you end up making a bigger mess than if you would have just waited and trusted and believed God. The encouragement is to believe God and his promises even when nothing is happening. There's over 300 promises in the Old Testament from God about Jesus. They needed to wait and wait and wait, and it seemed like nothing was happening hundreds of years in advance. Waiting for God to keep those promises are tough. I mean, if you're a child waiting for ice cream, just a handful of hours seems tough, right? If you're an adult waiting for ice cream, seems tough. But imagine waiting years, hundreds of years. The encouragement here, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, believe his promises. Even when maybe you might seem or feel insignificant in the process, even when it seems like nothing is happening. Sometimes the timing's not always what we desire because our timing is now, our timing is yesterday, our timing is hurry up. If you promised it, do it, God. Sometimes it's waiting on God, waiting on His promises. Trust him, believe him. You can take his promises to the bank. You can count on it. I know every single one of us has been let down by someone. 
They've not fulfilled their promise to us. And I would venture to say every single one of us has unfortunately broken a promise to someone else. Human nature. We fail. God never does. He keeps his promises. Even though sometimes delays take place, God's faithful to keep his promises. Even though impossibilities arise, God's faithful to keep his promises. Be comforted, be encouraged, be assured. We can believe his promises, even at times that you might feel insignificant, even when it seems like nothing is happening. And finally, even when life is difficult. Continue in Micah chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Again, talking down the road in this prophecy, he, the Savior, the Messiah, will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. Verses 4 and 5 give us already some difficulties and challenges. Verse 4 talks about a shepherd. He's going to stand and shepherd his flock. Being a shepherd is not necessarily the easiest thing, would you think? Taking care of a bunch of smelly sheep who wander off, and they need fed, and they need water, and, and then there's wolves and animals trying to get at those sheep. And you're outside a whole lot, sleeping under the stars, working under the stars. It's not necessarily the easiest concept of being the shepherd. And he's saying he's going to stand and shepherd the flock. Even in the midst of difficulties of being a shepherd, that's what he's going to do. Verse 5 talks about another difficulty. He'll be our peace even when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. Well, that just sounds lovely, doesn't it? An invading army to invade our land and march through our fortresses. Sometimes you've felt like that. In life, you felt like you've just been attacked and run over, and, and life has just kind of overrun you. Verse 4 and 5 present some challenges and difficulties. I've said many, many times, referred to what Jesus said himself in the New Testament. Jesus said, in this world you will have a perfect peachy life. Isn't that the Gospel of John? No, he didn't say perfect peachy life. I have to look at, maybe that's a different translation. No, he said, in this world you will have trouble, difficulties, hardships, trials, Stuff you don't want to face, but Jesus said, take heart. I've overcome the world. And the challenge and the encouragement from Micah is to trust and believe the promises of God, even when life is difficult. Because Jesus is the one who's overcome. Everything we're looking at here in the month of December Old Testament prophecies and promises are foretelling and foreshadowing Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, who's to come to die in our place and help our world. 
we can trust in him. We can believe in his promise even when life gets difficult. Even when we face challenges we don't want to go through. Even when life gets hard, Jesus Christ, he's conquered death and hell and the grave. We know the end of the story, right? We don't have to wonder, how's it going to end? Oh, what's going to happen? If you enjoy reading books or you know, you're watching a television show or, or a movie, you know, you're puzzled. What's going to happen? It's kind of like the ever-popular Christmas movies. They get together in the end. Right? No matter what movie you start watching, that's how it's going to end. You and I, we've seen the end of the story. Jesus Christ wins. Revelation describes what happens. And so even though life is difficult, even though we face some difficulties and hardships and trials, we can trust and believe in his promises. Now, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that might not be the most exciting part of the Christmas story. We often think about Mary and Joseph and the angel Gabriel and the wise men and the shepherds. How many of you have ever seen the prophet Micah at a nativity scene? I haven't. So taking a look at prophecies and promises, that might not be uh, maybe what's most thrilling in our lives, but Matthew and Luke, both of the Gospels, they pepper their accounts with prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Now, Matthew had a target audience of Jewish readers, and they were heavily invested in prophecy, having read and studied and understand, uh, understood, even though maybe not comprehending the who and the what. Luke's gospel was a little bit more of Hellenistic Gentiles. They weren't so geared towards prophecy, but both of them mention prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. God made promises hundreds of years ago, and God was fulfilling them. God made promises. God kept his promises. And God encouraged people to record them and for you and I to remember them. Since so we take a look at the Christmas story, it's not just about all of the holiday feelings. Feeling good with decorations, feeling good with music, feeling good with the tree. It's about a God who made a promise to send a Savior, to send a Messiah, to die upon the cross for you, to die upon the cross for me. He gave hope. And he followed through. He delivered on his promise centuries later. Listen, you and I can believe God's promises. Even if at times you might feel insignificant, even at times when it seems like nothing's happening, and even at times when life is difficult. 